anything we value more than God is an idol. Faith in God's sovereign care and control gives us the courage to obey Him despite our fears. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you open your Bibles to Daniel 3, Daniel 3, we're going to take a new look at a story I'm sure most of you know, the story of the fiery furnace. We're going to study in Daniel, Lord willing, we'll be here for a few more weeks or months. Um, the story, Daniel contains, the book of Daniel contains a great deal of prophecy, but obviously its purpose goes far beyond that. Daniel, along with Joseph, was a man who lived faithfully for God in a very hostile pagan culture. Um, Jesus commanded us to make disciples of those who are deceived, lost, and enslaved by Satan. And Daniel is a very solid example of how to be salt and light in a very dark and decaying world. If you think you have opposition to the way you live today, you ain't seen nothing yet. We're going to find out a little bit what opposition is like. So the key issue with Daniel 3 is very simple. How do we, as God's people, respond when man's law violates God's law? When the government commands you to do something that God forbids, what is an appropriate response and how do you do that? On what basis do you make these kinds of decisions? External pressure or internal principles? So we're going to discuss that today, Lord willing. Let's go to verse 1, chapter 3, verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width 6 cubits, he set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Verse 2, Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of all the provinces to the, come to the dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Now, we're not exactly sure when this statue was constructed, in light of chapter 2, which we talked about last week with a statue made of multiple metals and the dream he had and uh, Daniel's interpretation of it, it seems as though this event took place shortly thereafter. But apparently he had forgotten the impact that that dream had on him uh, that we discussed last week. Remember last week he saw a statue made of the head of gold, the chest and arms of silver, and it, it really, Daniel interpreted that to mean multiple empires. It was really the history of the Gentile world uh, for the next 2,600 years to date. De Nebuchadnezzar was so impressed, he fell down before Daniel, and he said, your God is the God above all gods, etc., etc. Well, apparently by chapter 3, he's forgotten all about that impact, because now he's constructing a statue that really directly opposes everything that God taught him and the first statue that he saw in chapter 2. So we believe that he probably built this statue pretty early in his reign. Remember, he took over in 605 B.C. Daniel came to Babylon in 605 B.C. with his three friends. It's probably somewhere within the first five or six years of his reign. Now, this statue reminds us of the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel was built about 500 years or so after the flood, in the same location. The plains of Shinar was where the city of Babylon was. So we had another tower, as you remember, that was built in direct defiance to God's command. God told the people, after the flood, I want you to scatter throughout the whole earth. Well, this group said, no, 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 we're not scattering. We're building a tower to heaven. That's what they literally said. So they built a tower of Babel, the world's first skyscraper, and decided that they were going to stay put and worship themselves, quite frankly, instead of God. So Nebuchadnezzar is following in their footsteps. Just like the Tower of Babel, he's building this great statue that's going to be to himself and his glory instead of God and his glory. 
That's the front end of the historical uh, timeline. The back end of the historical timeline, this statue also is a direct connection with the image the Antichrist puts up in Revelation 13. Remember, at the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist builds a statue and the false prophet commands, under penalty of death, everybody in the world to worship this statue or die. Nebuchadnezzar does the same thing. Revelation 13, interestingly enough, tells us that the number of the beast, that's the Antichrist, is the number of a man, and that number is 666. Now, six is the number in the Bible that is directly associated with humanity. It's associated with mankind. Mankind was created on the sixth day. We're commanded to work six days a week. So those of you who are only working 40 hours, quit your belly aching. They worked a lot more than that back then, right? You didn't even get it. Man, more coffee, more coffee. So seven in Scripture is the number associated with God. It's the number that's associated with heaven. Seven is the number of completion, the number of fulfillment, the number of perfection. And six is one short of seven. So six in Scripture always is the number of humanity, and it represents man's futile efforts to become perfect like God, and we all fall short of God's standards. Interestingly enough, this statue is how high? 60 cubits. How wide? Six cubits. If it was an obelisk, it's also six cubits deep. Six, six, six. I don't know if that means anything, but I find it fascinating. Its very dimensions would suggest man-centeredness and man-centered efforts as opposed to dependence on God. Now, a cubit is about 18 inches. Historically, a cubit is from your elbow to your fingertip. I know short people have shorter cubits and longer people have longer cubits, right? But it's about 18 inches. So 60 cubits is 90 feet tall. Six cubits wide is nine feet wide. So this is 90 feet high, nine feet wide. That is a skinny statue, really skinny. It's got 10 to 1 height to width, 10 feet high, 1 foot wide. Most people do not look like that. Their height to width are generally 4 to 1. If you're 4 feet high, 1 foot wide. 6 feet high, 1 foot wide. That's really skinny. So these dimensions are all out of whack if it's a statue of a human being. So it's been suggested that there was a large pedestal that this statue of a human being stood on, and that's how they got the 90 feet high and the 9 feet wide. And it clearly was not made of solid gold. Think about this. If you get a solid gold, 90-foot gold obelisk, 9 feet by 9 feet at the base, tapers up to 6 feet by 6 feet at the top, it weighs 3,000 tons of solid gold. The statue is probably made of wood or metal and plated overlaid with gold plating is probably how it was built. And it was set up on an open plane so it could be seen for a long distance by large groups of people. The plains of Dura probably are pretty close to the city of Babylon because all the government leaders were expected to walk out there and worship this thing. They did find, interestingly enough, a French archaeologist a number of years ago, about six miles southwest of Bakersfield, they just, Bakersfield, Babylon. <laughs> Yeah, you know, six miles southwest. Yeah, over in Arvin, they figured out that that's where the statue was. Yeah. Who knew? Who knew? I mean, you know, I mean, could have been next to your neighborhood, right? Anyway, about six miles southwest of Babylon, they discovered a huge brick square. And some postulate with a great, a pretty fair amount of certainty, or for, let's say speculation, that it might have been the base for this statue because there doesn't seem to be any other reason for it to exist. So this statue is built by Nebuchadnezzar, and it seems as though it was a reaction to the dream that he had in chapter 2, where God showed him the statue made out of multiple metals. And remember, Nebuchadnezzar was the head of gold? Well, Nebuchadnezzar said, I don't want to be the head of gold. I want the whole statue to be of gold, and it's all about me. He rejected God's plan for his kingdom, he rejected the idea that there were going to be multiple empires to follow his empire. 
He believed that Babylon, the empire, was a result of his own genius. And many people today do the same thing. They get up in the morning, they look in the mirror, and they go, I will never talk to anybody smarter than that there today. <laughs> right? I mean, that's just how, how, that's human nature. That's how we operate. Nebuchadnezzar, we're going to find out, requires a fair amount of humbling before he comes to some reality. But at any rate, he builds this huge statue, and he summons anybody who's anybody to show up. There's eight classes of government officials all the way from the top to the bottom that are required to show up to this ceremony. He now, remember, he ruled over a very diverse population. There's multiple language groups, multiple ethnicities, multiple religions. It's a very diverse uh, people group that he, he uh, monitors and rules over. And he tells them, by the way, when, when, when an emperor invites you to dinner, you then show up, right? It's not an invitation. It is a command, right? Verse 4, everybody's there. They show up, and here's what they hear. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language, that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, the lute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king has not set up. If you needed some incentive, verse 6 will give you some incentive. But whoever does not fall down and worship the golden image shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. So Nebuchadnezzar issues an empire-wide invitation, command, to show up to the plain of Dura. Only after they show up do they know why they've been summoned. He doesn't tell them before they come why they're going to show up and what will happen if they don't show up. A lot of them might just disappear into the hinterlands, right? They're invited to show up. They come, and he says, here's why you're here. It seems as though he want, he's given everybody a loyalty test or kind of a patriotism test. When you hear the music, show your loyalty by falling down and worshiping the image. It suggests very strongly that Nebuchadnezzar set himself up as both a head of state and the head of religion. He wanted to consolidate his power, it seems, and unify the empire around the worship of himself. If you failed to do that, to fall down and worship the issue, it wasn't just a religious offense, it was political treason, which was punishable, of course, by death. Now, this is not new. For centuries and centuries, kings and chiefs and all sorts of leaders have used religion to create political unity, create political loyalty based on the fear of angering the gods. That's why every time you read history, you'll see a, a president, a king, a leader, or a chief. They need the support of what? Religious leaders. They've got their witch doctors and their medicine men and their shamans and their popes and their priests and their pastors. We all, political leaders, want the support of the religious community to legitimize their political efforts. Nebuchadnezzar is no different. And if you think that doesn't happen today, you are asleep. It's everywhere all the time. Protestant, Catholic, Orthodox, Indian, Asian Indian, every political leader wants to use religion for political purposes. Nebuchadnezzar was no different. He wasn't taking any chances. He wanted to put people in the mood. And to do that, he had music. I mean, when you read this, he had an orchestra right there on site to get people in the mood to comply with his orders. And that's nothing new either. People in positions of authority have often used music to move people and influence people. We do it today here all the time. You ever been to a marching band at a sporting event? at a parade, Super Bowl halftime shows? Why do you think they use music in advertising jingles? You remember it, right? Patriotic music on the 4th of July? Or even worship songs in church to put you in the mood? Think about it. 
I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm saying it is. Pay attention to what is going on and why it's going on. The truth of it is we're all religious by nature, and God has created most of us to respond to music. So Nebuchadnezzar's utilizing that and leveraging that to put people in the mood to comply with what he wants them to do, to stir up that religious or patriotic sediments. He's trying to achieve unity in the empire through religious unity, and he makes himself as the object of worship. Guess who else is going to do that at the end times? The Antichrist does that in spades. He makes himself the object of worship, and like Nebuchadnezzar, he's going to kill anybody who opposes him. Last week, we talked a little bit about the times of the Gentiles. We said from the moment that Nebuchadnezzar conquered Jerusalem in 586, the times of the Gentiles began. And the times of the Gentiles were that period of time where the Jews, Jerusalem and Israel, were going to be under the influence and domination and authority of the Gentile world. We are still living in that time, the times of the Gentiles. And the times of the Gentiles will end when Christ returns and establishes the capital of the world in Jerusalem. At that point in time, the Jewish nation is going to regain its leadership position among the nations of the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar represents the beginning of the times of the Gentiles. Antichrist is going to represent the ends of the times of the Gentiles. Nebuchadnezzar gives you a little incentive to be obedient. He says, if you don't fall down and worship, you will be immediately cast into a furnace of blazing fire. You know what that tells me? He had the fire already lit. And the fire, the kiln, the furnace was probably visible to everybody who was looking at the statue. So that would be a little motivation to comply if you saw this fire. You failed to fall down and worship, death was immediate. Now this furnace he talks about was probably one of two things. It was probably either a very thick-walled stone furnace they used to smelt metal. Probably the metal that they used to build the statue with. Alternatively, it could have been one of many brick kilns that they used to fire, that means heat, and glaze bricks. Nebuchadnezzar was a builder, and they built towers and administrative buildings and walls, and that were all made out of fired brick. Well, it took a lot of kilns to fire, that means to harden that brick for all those building projects. Typically, the Mesopotamian kilns were built on a hillside or at the top of a man-made mound to allow easy access to the top of the furnace. Think of a cone-shaped, remember the old milk bottles? Think of one of those. You had an opening at the top, a chimney at the top. They would have an opening at the bottom of this kiln, a, literally a doorway, where you actually fed the fire with wood, charcoal, or bitmen. That was the fuel for the fire. And they also had several openings at the bottom of this cone-shaped structure to put air in. They had bellows and pipes because, as you know, when you start forcing air onto a fire, the temperature goes up pretty dramatically. Paper burns at about 451. For those of you that have read Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, that's the temperature paper burns. Well, if you get charcoal or bitumen in here and you get a good air temperature going, you can get these furnaces in Mesopotamia to about 1,800 degrees, which is enough to do your prime rib turn it into ash pretty quickly, right? It's interesting, or terrifying, I guess, that Jeremiah 29 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar had already roasted King Zedekiah of Judah, probably in one of these kilns. Verse 8. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. There are certain Jews whom you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Here's the principle. People who oppose God will oppose God's people. Don't be surprised, be prepared. People who oppose God will oppose God's people. Don't be surprised, be, be prepared. So it says they brought charges. Those are formal 
denunciations of disloyalty. It's a legal charge. The word denounced is very, very graphic. The word denounced literally means to tear in pieces. It literally means to shred and eat the pieces. So it's a desire to shred your enemy into pieces and devour your enemy. So it, it tells you something about the hard attitude these other Chaldeans had toward Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And it's extremely clear that there was anti-Semitism at play here because the Chaldeans, they highlight the ethnic background of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as members of the Jewish conquered people group. Remember Nebuchadnezzar probably five years before, maybe even earlier, he had conquered Jerusalem, brought all these captive slaves into the land. And the Jews were monotheists. They worshipped God alone. They had a reputation for not worshipping all the polytheistic many, many gods of the Babylonians. And we know that ultimately anti-Semitism comes from Satan. Because Satan was on target and listening in Genesis 3 when God said, I'm going to bring a Messiah who's going to destroy you. And later on, God promised Abraham that Messiah is coming from your seed. Satan's not stupid. He knew that the Jewish nation was going to be the source place of the Messiah that was going to kill him. All the anti-Semitism you see in the world today does not occur by accident. It is absolutely spiritual warfare. Satan hates the Jewish race because they produce the Messiah that is going to destroy him. Now, it says that they brought charges. Now, if you think backstabbing is not common in the political realm, once again, you need to wake up. Backstabbing is very common in the political realm. Babylon is no different. Clearly, these Chaldeans that bring this charge are envious that these Jewish captives have been promoted above them. Daniel 2 tells us that Nebuchadnezzar had actually appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the province of Babylon. That means Jewish captives now have positions in the administration that are above native-born Chaldeans. If you think there's not some resentment here, there's a lot of resentment. So they tell the king that those people that you appointed disregard you, they don't serve your gods. Actually, Nebuchadnezzar, you were kind of stupid to appoint them, you know put the dig in, right? They knew he had really thin skin, and they were going to obviously poke that. I am utterly interested in the fact that on the plain of Dura, there's room for thousands and thousands of people. How many people refused to bow? Three. Only Three. What about the other Jewish captives that were part of the government training program with them that were there, part of the group? Only three refused to bow. Obviously, the rest feared death, loss of position, prestige, power, etc. Sometimes in Scripture, the most profound things are what are not said. And what screams for your attention in these verses is, where is Daniel? He's not mentioned anywhere. No explanation is given. We don't know if he was somewhere else in the empire on business for Nebuchadnezzar. We don't know whether his loyalty was so unquestioned he wasn't even asked to show up. But Daniel is not mentioned anywhere. However, we do know that later on, probably 40, 50 years later, actually closer to 60 years later, King Darius, the Persian, is going to institute an almost identical test of loyalty, and Daniel winds up in the lion's den on that one because he refuses to not pray to the God of Israel. Verse 13, how does Nebuchadnezzar respond in this mature way, right? Just like some of the people you know. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, I don't know what your translation, it might say fury, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready, at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, lyre, trigon, psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made, very well. But 
if you will not worship, you will be immediately cast into the burnace of blazing fire and, underline this in your text, what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Here's the principle. Human pride is suicide because it declares war on Almighty God. Human pride is suicide because it declares war on Almighty God. I talk to people that are mad at God for a variety of reasons, and they say, I'm going to stay mad at him until I die. And I say, here's the problem. He's going to outlive you. <laughs> and then what? To say that Nebuchadnezzar had a quick temper would be just a little bit of an understatement, right? This guy went from room temperature to boiling instantly. Now, in, in Nebuchadnezzar's defense, he did give them a chance to defend themselves. He brought them in and he said, I've heard this about you. In fact, is it true that you're not going to fall down and worship my image and serve my God? So he gave them the chance to defend themselves. He restated the command and the consequences for disobedience. And he said, really, you will either bow or you will burn. One of the two. And then he adds the fateful line. And what God is there who can you deliver you out of my hands? What he's basically saying is, in my empire, I have absolute authority. There is no God strong enough to deliver you out of my hands. Right there, he crossed the Rubicon of rebellion and declared war against Almighty God, the God who created the heavens and the earth. Just a clue for you, in case you're thinking about this, when you get into an arm-wrestling contest with the Almighty... It's your arm that gets shattered, not his. Pharaoh said to Moses in Exodus 5, when Moses said, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? King Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, century before, told Hezekiah, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? Who among all the gods of all the lands have delivered their countries from my hand that the Lord should deliver Israel from my hand? Now, when you call out God and go to war with him, that is a death wish. What happened to Pharaoh? He decided he was going to rebel against God God sent him ten plagues, destroyed the land of Egypt, included his firstborn son. He finally begged Israel to leave, asked Moses to bless him before he left, changed his mind, chased them down into the Red Sea, got himself drowned, and the entire Egyptian army by God. What about Sennacherib? One night after dinner, God sent one angel one angel who slew 185,000 Assyrian soldiers and delivered Judah. Sennacherib went back to his own house, went to the temple to worship his God, and was murdered by his own sons. You don't mock God. Period. Without consequence. Nebuchadnezzar is going to find that out. Verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this. If it be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Here's the principle. Faith in God's sovereign care and control gives us the courage to obey Him despite our fears. Faith in God's sovereign care and control gives us the courage to obey Him despite our fears. You know, Nebuchadnezzar was commanding them to do what God had explicitly forbidden multiple times throughout history. Exodus 20, verse 4, God came to Moses on the top of the mountain and gave them the Ten Commandments. Commandment number two is what? You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above, on the earth beneath, 
or the water under the earth, you shall not, oh my gosh, I said, I forgot the not. Did you put that in, Rob? I, okay, I just typed it in. You shall not worship them or serve them. Romans 1 tells us what humans do and why they do it. Romans 1.25, they, sinful humanity, exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who was blessed forever. And then Matthew 4.10, Jesus is talking to Satan and Satan tempts him to fall down and worship him. Jesus quotes the Old Testament, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Nebuchadnezzar's command was a direct violation of God's commandment, no idol manufacturing, no idol worshiping. Romans condemns the worship of the creature. The creature is you and me. Anything in the creation. Anything in the creation. Because only God is worthy of worship. Only the creator is worthy of the worship of the creature. So anything that we value more than God is an idol. Anything, I know many of you say, well, I don't have this little God I fall down and worship made of stone in my house. Anything we value more than God is an idol. That includes your children and grandchildren. No! Yes. It's true. Anything you value more than God is an idol. Jesus told Satan, God alone is to be worshipped. Now here's their dilemma. And here's our dilemma too. All governments are established by God. Romans 13 tells us that. Furthermore, we are commanded as God's people to submit to God-appointed authority. For the Christian, civil disobedience is only permitted when human government commands you to do what God forbids or forbids you to do what God commands. Let me say that again. Civil disobedience for the Christian is only permitted when human government commands you to do what God forbids or forbids you to do what God commands. You know what's implied in that? You better know what God commands. You have to know his word. God's people must obey God rather than men and then submit to whatever consequences human governments choose to impose. And there's a lot of examples in Scripture. Remember, the Hebrew nation is in slavery in Egypt. They're populating pretty quickly. Pharaoh commands all Hebrew babies are to be killed at birth. And it says the Hebrew midwives refused to obey Pharaoh's orders. Moses' parents refused to kill Moses. And he was on the death list because he was a Hebrew baby boy. Mordecai refused to bow down to Haman and King Ahasuerus' Persian empire in the future. The apostles disobeyed the Sanhedrin's command to stop preaching in the name of Jesus, and they were flogged for their disobedience. When they say flogged, that means flogged blood. And interestingly enough, they didn't protest their punishment. They didn't file a wrongful termination lawsuit or whatever it happens to be. It says they rejoiced that they had been counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. They showed that they honored God's sovereignty by submitting to the punishment ordered by human government even when it was unjust, because God is the lawgiver. I don't even like saying this to you, because my flesh goes, go get him, tiger, you know. But the reality is, God's plan is, you obey God, and then whatever consequences are imposed by human government, you accept as coming from God himself. That is easy for me to say. It's desperately difficult to live. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faced with that situation. By the way, they didn't have any time to prepare for it. Here's a basic principle. Pastor Rogers said this for 20 years I've known him. It's too late to prepare for a crisis when you're in the crisis. It's too late to prepare for a crisis in the crisis. You will handle the crisis with whatever resources you already have when the crisis hits you. They didn't believe in situation ethics. They didn't believe in external pressure. They didn't argue that the king's command was unfair. 
They didn't ask for an exception to his rules because they were special, privileged people. They didn't offer excuses. They didn't ask time to think it over. Decades ago, they had predetermined, we are not going to serve any god but Yahweh. Actually, not decades, probably years ago. These folks are probably under 25. When King Nebuchadnezzar asked, what god is there that can deliver you out of my hands? They said, our god can. We serve the one true God, the creator of the universe, who has the power to deliver us from your furnace of blazing fire. And they could say that because they knew God personally. Jewish history is filled with examples of God's deliverance. Remember Lot, Abraham's nephew? He was delivered from the destruction of Sodom. It says the angels had to lay hands on him, his wife, and his daughters and drag them out of the city before the volcano blew up and buried the place. Israel was delivered from Egyptian slavery, probably some of the greatest miracles in the Old Testament. Gideon was delivered from Midianite occupation. David was delivered from what? The lion, the bear, Goliath. King Jehoshaphat was delivered from the Moabites. The Old Testament's filled with examples of God delivering his people from evil. However, these three believed that God could save them, not necessarily that he would save them. He has made no promises that he would save them from the fiery furnace. And guess what? It didn't matter if he didn't save them. They would rather face physical death, the fire of physical death, than the fire of God's judgment. What they basically told Nebuchadnezzar is, God will deliver us. We don't know if he's going to deliver us from the flames or through the flames, but he's going to deliver us out of your hand, either by life or by death, and we're okay with either one. That's why we read about these folks centuries later. Remember, God is sovereign. When you look at the New Testament, Peter, James, and John, Three disciples, intimate with Jesus. James is beheaded. God sends an angel and takes Peter out of prison. So he's not beheaded by Herod. Peter winds up being crucified upside down, and John lives to 90 plus. Why? God is sovereign. Some of you in here may live to 100. Some of you won't be here next year. Why? God is sovereign. See, when you value honoring God more than your own life, then the fear of man loses its power over you. This world can only have power over you if this world has something you want. If you want Jesus more than anything in this world, then this world's not going to intimidate you because the worst thing they can do is kill you and send you to heaven. I would say that would be a significant upgrade. Scripture clearly tells us it would be a significant upgrade. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 10, 28, Do not fear those who kill the body, but rather fear him, him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. It's an eternal perspective. Guess what? God is still a good God if he does not heal my terminal illness. God is still a good God if he lets me suffer hardship. God is still a good God if my loved ones die early and go to heaven. God is still a good God if I lose my job. See, seeing Jesus face to face is better than anything on this life. Because these three honored God more than their physical life, they simply told Nebuchadnezzar, we're not going to serve your God. And the consequences of that obedience are in God's hands, not my hands. And I'm okay with that. If you don't get to that point and you value something more than honoring God, you will cave to external pressure. Verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in his army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace had been made extremely hot, the fire, flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. 
Here's the principle. When you live by internal principles, you won't surrender to external pressures. When you live by internal principles, you won't surrender to external pressures. Now, needless to say, Nebuchadnezzar is not known for self-control. He's going to make a public example of anybody who dares to disobey him. By the way, this term is seven times hotter. This is hyperbole. It means heat that sucker as hot as it'll go, as hot as possible. Now, this was really stupid on his part. If he wanted them to suffer, he had to cool down the fire a few hundred degrees and slow cook them for a few hours. But he got hot, literally, and said, make this thing as hot as possible, which means he condemned them to an almost instant death. And he commanded his bravest, some of his bravest and strongest soldiers, throw them into the kiln. You know the fire is so hot, it wound up killing the soldiers that threw them in. So his rashness cost the life of some of his best soldiers, which occurs, unfortunately. Stupid leadership costs people who follow stupid leadership or are under living under that authority. But because Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego lived by the principle of obedience to God, they were able to resist the external pressure of the king. By the way, if you don't believe in heaven, you will never make this choice. If this life is all there is and there is no heaven, then you will protect this life at all costs. And that's one of the reasons, quite frankly, I'm going to get very politically incorrect, but it's one of the reasons this virus is striking such terror into people. And by the way, I'm not critiquing being careful, cautious, prudent, being fully persuaded in your own mind, following your own conscience before God about what he wants you to do with this virus. You be persuaded in your own mind what the Lord would have you do. But you are not to live in fear of death. We are free from fear of death because we have heaven to look forward to. Verse 23. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up, Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished, stood up in haste. He responded, said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast down in the midst of the fire? They said, Certainly, O king. He answered, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like a son of the gods. Now, it must have been a pretty large kiln. And by the way, when they would fire bricks, they would sometimes fire hundreds of bricks at a time. So it was a pretty large Plenty of space for four men to be able to stand up and walk around in it. What's a paradox is that the soldiers who threw them in were destroyed on the outside, and the ones who were thrown in were preserved. And the key to their preservation was the identity of the fourth man. Nebuchadnezzar says it's like a son of the gods. We believe, biblically, that it's either an angel or, even more astonishing, the pre-incarnate appearance of the second member of the Trinity, our Lord Jesus Christ, who came. I've wondered. It says they were loosed and walking around in 1,800-degree flames. You ever wonder what they were talking about? <laughs> Seriously. I mean, they're chatting, walking around in the flames. I wonder what Jesus told them. I... I don't think I, there was no heat for them. It was remarkable. It would be fascinating. Yeah? See, God had made this promise to Israel 100 years early in Isaiah. He says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you, for I am the Lord your God. It's a promise to the nation that God's going to preserve them. But this is an illustration of that right here. Verse 26, And Nebuchadnezzar came to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, you servants of the Most High God, and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. Then the satraps, the prefects, the governors, the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men. Nor was the hair on their head singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who sent his angel and delivered his servants who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as not to serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore, 
I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, or Abednego shall be torn limb from limb and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap inasmuch as there is no other God like no other God is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. Nebuchadnezzar is this king that swings. I mean, I don't know if the guy was bipolar, but I mean, literally, he went from love you to death, hate you to death, really quickly. I mean, he had these mood swings. So he goes from you're going to die to now anybody you criticize you is going to die. Here's the principle. When God performs a miracle, it's a witness to the world and an encouragement to his people. When God performs a miracle, it's a witness to the world and an encouragement to his people. And let me just say this. God is working miracles in our lives every day. Most of them are not as visibly dramatic as this one. We call that God's providence. The fact that you got here today without getting in a car wreck and going to the hospital was God's providence. The fact that the sun came up today was God's providence. The fact that you're still breathing his air is God's providence, right? We take that for granted. We don't call those miracles. Miracles when God intervenes in the natural order of things and does something above and beyond natural law, that's what he does here. When God does that, it's witnessing to the world that he exists, that there is a personal infinite God that intervenes in the affairs of humans and is designed to encourage us. Now, let's look at the logistics. The door of the furnace that they talked about, that Nebuchadnezzar's talking, that's the ground level opening. That's where they put the fuel into the fire. You could actually look into the flames and when you could see that. It's interesting that God so arranged it that there are all these dozens and hundreds of high officials here to witness this miracle. So it just wasn't Nebuchadnezzar who saw this. There's hundreds of people who are eyewitnesses to this intervention. The only evidence that they had been in the flames, there's only one evidence. The ropes that bound them were burned away. There was no other evidence. I don't know if you've ever had a fire in your house or near your house, but when smoke gets in cloth, you're probably not going to get it out. Smoke damage will almost certainly mean your drapes are going to have to be replaced. They're not going to be able to be cleaned. You can even smell smoke on these folks. And Nebuchadnezzar had just asked the question, what God is there that can deliver you out of my hands? And the God of Israel answered with supernatural deliverance. I don't know how you get any clearer than that, that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the Bible, the God who created the heavens and earth, showed up with supernatural intervention. And when God performs a miracle, he controls every detail, so there's no other explanation except his intervention. So Nebuchadnezzar now blesses the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What amazed him, and what will amaze the world, is that you are willing to die for what you believe. Because they don't understand that. For them, this life is all they have. And this is where all of their values are. For us, what we really value is not here, in the sense of it's not our home. So Nebuchadnezzar makes a declaration. By the way, it is not a belief that the God of Israel is the one and only true God. It's not a statement that all the Babylonian idols are human, in, uh, human inventions. He saw God's power firsthand and he says, your God is the most high God, not the only God, right? He said, your God, Yahweh, is the chief of all the pantheon of gods in Babylon. By the way, he does not repent of his pride, and as a result of that, Lord willing, in the next two or three weeks, we're going to find out that he is chastened and humbled. And in chapter 5, 4 and 5, I think you're going to meet him in heaven. 
he makes a declaration that the God of Israel is the only God. So you say, Brad, so what? Well, we are entering a period of history where governmental and cultural opposition to Christianity is increasing. It's only going to increase. It is not going to improve. We have been living under the umbrella of a culture in this country that was founded on biblical principles and have been largely cooperative and largely sympathetic to Christian value systems. That is changing and will probably continue to change for the duration of our lives on earth. So for us, God records this to strengthen our faith and to strengthen our commitment for the battles that we're going to face. And the battles we're going to face are going to increase. By the way, we look and we say, well, God did this back then. God is doing this kind of thing all over the world today. It's just we here don't ever put ourselves at the point in time where if God doesn't come through, we're going to die. We live in a culture that doesn't put us in that situation. But many parts of the world face cultural opposition to the gospel such that if God doesn't work in a supernatural way, his children will die. And so you read about that. So be encouraged, but also be prepared. Stop expecting the culture to support your belief system. Probably not going to happen. We are supposed to be salt and light in a decaying and dark culture, and we certainly have that here in spades. So let's summarize, and then we'll do prayer and praise. Point one, people who oppose God will oppose God's people. Don't be surprised. Be prepared. Number two, human pride is suicide because it declares war on Almighty God. And that's where some of our hope is. The culture hates God. The culture is going to war to God. Yes, we know the end of the story. The end of the story is Jesus Christ is going to come and rule and reign over planet Earth, period. And we're going to rule and reign with him because he promised that. Number three, faith in God's sovereign care and control gives us the courage to obey and despite our fears. By the way, it doesn't say that these three were not scared. Did you read anywhere where it said they had no fear? It says they obeyed regardless of their fear. Regardless. Because they believed that God was in control and God cared for them. Number four, it's too late to prepare for a crisis when you're in the crisis. Get ready now. You will hit a crisis, and if you wait to get ready for it, uh, you won't be prepared. Number five, when you live by internal principles, you won't surrender to external pressures, and we certainly are going to face external pressures in coming days. And lastly, when God performs a miracle, it's a witness to the world and an encouragement to his people. We're going to see God do things at the end times. We'll see God, let me modify that, in our lifetime. That will amaze us because he is the God who's going to accomplish his purposes on planet Earth, and he has a role for you and I in that process. I love you guys. Now that you know, do. Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California, every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to manabiblepodcast at gmail.com, and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today, and now that you know, do.